0: Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the Mbit Podcast, where we interview business leaders and investors to share their insights with the next generation. Today, we are joined by Matt McGinnis. Matt began his career at Apple, spending seven years in the education and business development sector. After his time at Apple, he embarked on a new mission to build his own company, Inkling, a digital publishing platform for educational materials that raised over $102 million in funding and partnered with leading textbook publishers. Currently, Matt is the Chief Operating Officer at Rippling, which is an all-in-one HR and IT platform that eliminates a lot of the administrative burden required to run a company. He joined when there were just 70 employees, and today they are ranked at one of LinkedIn's top startups. So first off, thank you, Matt, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. It's I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So, first off, you know, we mentioned in the intro, you began your career at Apple. So, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience at Apple and then how that helped shape your approach to business development?
1: Um, so, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and Northeastern Canada and wanted to get out of there and go do something bigger and more exciting than i could possibly have done at home as much as i as much as i love the place where i grew up, where i grew up and apple was always a part of my life like in high school when everybody had sort of thought apple was toast in the late 90s i was the like lone holdout still sitting there on my mac people just thought i was weird and in college same story you know it was like not the cool thing although apple sort of began its turnaround around the time that i was there when steve came back and I was the Apple campus rep at Harvard, which you know meant I was like the little nerdy kid that showed up to the professors and showed up to other students trying to convince them that they should switch to a Mac. Or at the end of my time, they're like, should use an iPod, which is when things started to get kind of cool. So when I graduated from college, Apple made me an offer. And uh, it was a sort of a continuation of what i had been doing, which was uh, I was started doing education marketing for them. And man, Apple is a freaky place. You know, this is one thing that I've learned in hindsight is, is that every company is very, very much a function of its founder and CEO. The operating system of any given company is really a direct response to the underlying hardware of the founder. And Apple was no exception. The thing is like when I was there, I didn't really understand that. And I didn't know anything else. I had no basis for comparison. It's the only company I'd ever really been associated with. And so Apple in the 2000s was like very much a Steve Jobs company. And what that meant was like it was really top down. It was very segmented where one group didn't talk to the other. All of the information kind of flowed through Steve. And that led to a lot of politics. It sort of led to people muscling for rank. You know, if you were a director, you were really, really convinced you had to be senior director. And lot of title focus because of the dynamics of like, it not feeling like a collaborative environment. It was really sort of like dog eat dog. But I mean, you know, to the credit of that company, man, it performs and Apple's an incredible, an incredible company. It's just a weird place to learn the first set of habits you have as a professional. Cause coming out of Apple, I had to unlearn a lot. Like I had to, I had to realize like, oh, actually not talking to the media about your company is a bad thing. It's not a good thing, even though that's, that's what Apple does you know, not collaborating is probably more of a bad thing on average than like setting things up for collaboration. And, you know, the list kind of goes on. I'm super thankful for the time I had there. I saw excellence in marketing. I saw excellence in product. I saw excellence in so many aspects of how Apple was run and I'm sure still is, but there were cultural habits that were really idiosyncratic to that company. And like the overarching lesson was that every company plots a course for success on the basis of its own idiosyncratic values, and like no company can be emulated. Like you can't build a company to success by doing what some other company did. You got to chart your own course. And that was a big lesson I had a few years out of after being out of Apple.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there's one part of your story that I definitely resonated with. I know when I was back or 10 or 11 years old, that's where Apple was definitely one of the companies where I first started learning about the technology sector and business. I'd try to repair people's phones before the genius bar could, and it definitely was an interesting dynamic. But now as we transition a little bit, after Apple, you decided to co-found Inkling, which was a cloud-based platform for creating and sharing interactive digital content. What was that journey like? And then why did you initially decide to build the company?
1: I mean, if I'm honest, I decided to build the company because I had set it as a destiny for myself as a teenager, which is a really shitty reason to start a company for the <laughs> record. You know, I had definitely set up this vision of myself when I was 18 and I was staring down the barrel of like the dot-com boom and all the stuff that was happening out in Silicon Valley and just convinced that I had to be a part of it. And I and I think I set a frame for myself that I had to fill which was that I had to go to the Valley, I had to get into a tech company, I had to start a company and had you know, I had to have my, my shot at greatness. And I think that's actually the secret motivation behind like the majority of startups in Silicon Valley. It's just like nobody wants to admit it. It's cool. Like starting a company out of a sense of ego is fine. It, it may yield an awesome outcome. Better to start a company out of a burning sense of wanting to solve a specific problem. But I can't quite say I was there. Like we started the company because we wanted to. We wanted to do digital textbooks on iPad. I, I knew about the iPad in advance. I had sort of a, a leg up in that I had been working in the education industry at Apple for a long time, and so I, you know, I knew the lay of the land. I knew higher education. I, I knew the world of textbooks. And so, you know, there was a lot of energy around the iPad at the time that we started the company, and it allowed us to raise around from Sequoia Capital. They were willing to place the bet with us. And it was a good idea. Like, I, even though I sort of feel like I started the company because I wanted to go fulfill some, like, you know, self-imposed, self-imposed goal, <clears throat> there was a ton of energy around the actual core of the business, which was to build a publishing platform for for learning materials that was, at least in theory, going to change the way people thought about it. And it just didn't work out that way. Because it, as it turns out, like, nobody gives a shit about textbooks. Like, students don't care. They will steal them if they can as a first option. And if they can't do that, they'll buy secondhand. It's like, you know, it's it's like the utility for which you want to pay the least possible amount of money. And so anything that was sort of whiz bang or sexy that had to cost any more, which we did because it was just expensive to produce this stuff, was just like kind of doomed to failure. The business ultimately got traction in corporate learning where there's like, you know, an economic impetus for people to to care about quality and to care about agility and publishing and that kind of thing. And so at the end of the day, where Inkling ultimately found success was like at McDonald's and Caterpillar and Kohl's department stores and these kinds of places where they have hourly employees they got to train up over time, and the business ended up being okay. Um, but man, there were a lot of twists and turns along the journey, and you know, back to this concept of it having been ego-driven at some level to start a company. Like I had my ego ground into a fine powder. And turned into a cup of tea that I could drink at the end of the journey. Cause I'm super thankful for it. Like, I'm very happy that I had the snot kicked out of me because I'm a better person. Like, I, I'm much more, I think, aware of my place in the universe as a result of that journey. And I, I wouldn't give it up for anything. But it was, it was a rough go, uh, as most founders will tell you about trying to run a company for, you know, most of a decade.
0: Gotcha. And what would you say were probably like some of the most important lessons that you learned building Inkling that you later took on with you when you joined Rippling?
1: Um, man, it's hard to separate out the lessons that I learned at Inkling from the lessons I've learned at Rippling. I, I think like, you know, the human brain is in constant motion and you're, you're sort of always integrating new information. My time at Inkling certainly taught me, you know, I can give you a few positive things and a few negative things. On the positive side, like in business, we don't talk enough about Velocity being like the single biggest differentiator for a company. Like you, if you can just out-execute your competition, you will win in a good market. We had a bit of that at Inkling. We have a lot more of it at Rippling. I will say too, though, that like, man, you read Silicon Valley headlines and everybody encourages you to be persistent, you know, stick with it. I literally just like last night read a tweet from some founder who had pivoted and felt like he found product market fit. And I'm like, you know... I hope you're right. But he said, that's the lesson. The lesson is never give up. And I'm like, bullshit, you should totally give up. Like, absolutely fucking give up. You know, like you have one life to live. If something's not working, don't out of a sense of pride or a sense of really misplaced loyalty to like your investors or whatever, like your investors are going to be just fine. Trust me. Like don't out of a sense of loyalty to them or out of a sense of pride, like keep grinding when you in your heart of hearts know that a business is not going to work. Because when I look back at Inkling, I do wish that we had sort of thrown in the towel maybe a couple of years earlier and and just harvested the the reward for having built a decent business. It just wasn't going to be like a multi-billion dollar outcome and, and that's fine. But like, so you got to move on. That was one big lesson I learned. And like, I'm, again, I'm super thankful For the chapter that came before this one, because being at at Rippling, I'm only entitled to even have this job as a result of the experience I have from my previous chapter. So there's no regrets. But man, like most of the Silicon Valley tropes about how you run a company or they're all really playing to the incentive structures of the investment community and the founders are sort of pawns in that trade. And I think one of the headlines is like, never give up. That's that's like definitely to the advantage of the investors because they have nothing to lose once they put their money into the company.
0: Definitely. And after you ended up exiting with Inkling and moving on to Rippling, what was your thought process at the time? What were you thinking about? Were you thinking about becoming an investor or continuing to be an operator, which you are now? But what was your thought process at that time?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there's a really important nine months that existed between when I finally finished my work at at Inkling and, and came to Rippling. And during that time, like I went down to Big Sur, if you've never been to Big Sur in California, it's like one of the most gorgeous places on earth, mountains and ocean up against each other with a lot of trees in the middle. And like, I went hiking and I lived in a little cabin. My my husband was like kind enough to just cut me loose and give me free time. <clears throat> and I read a bunch of books. And as it turned out, I was probably not going to fulfill this crazy frame that I had created for myself as a teenager. And I had asked, asked myself the question, like, "What? Am, why am I doing any of this? Like, what, what is the point? Like, we're all going to die. We're all going to turn into dirt again. We're not going to take any of this with us. My personal belief is that, you know, what comes after you're alive is the same as what came before it, which is to say not much. And so I'm like, what am I going to do with the next chapter of my life? At the time, I was 30, 39, 38, And I came to the conclusion that nothing matters. And therefore, like, let's just have fun. And like, life is a sport. And I decided to play my sport. My sport, unfortunately, for me, it's like not tennis or hockey or anything, you know, it's like, I'm definitely not very sporty in the the literal (laughs) sense. But but my sport is my sport is business. And I love the sport of company building. I love getting out of bed every day and taking on the challenges of the people and the technology and the market. And so I kind of set up three goals for myself. One was that I wanted to, I want to play for Olympic gold. Like if you're going to play a sport, like go for the championship, don't play in the sort of junior varsity, you know? The second was that I wanted to play the game with people I liked because like the sport is just way more fun. If you like your colleagues, you spend a lot of time with them. And then the third was that I wanted, I wanted to play to win. Like, not just sort of be in the big league, but also know that being in the big league with people you enjoyed the sport with would, would, would like be all the much more better if everybody was in it to win it. And, and so, like, at Rippling, you know, being in the big league, well, yeah, number one means like we're in a huge addressable market. We have the opportunity to totally transform the way companies think about running themselves. And like, if you can't turn that into money, you know, you must be doing something awfully wrong on the team front. Like Parker and I have known each other. Parker's our CEO. He and I have known each other since we were teenagers. And, you know, you don't get a second at bat with a market this big and have the CEO be somebody you you love and respect as much as I you know do with Parker. And so, that was a unique opportunity, and then like playing to win, like for sure. There's just like every single person I met at this company before I came was in that bucket, and so I thought about investing full time. I thought about starting another company, um, you know, starting a new company. No matter how good you are, the odds are terrible, and and here was this rocket ship that I could hop on, and so Rippling was the, the obvious right choice for me, and like in hindsight, hell yeah, like and and it's been like redeeming because you know you can be a really talented founder running a company in a in a in a sort of poopy market and not really get anywhere and you know what you eventually start to think is like i suck you know like it's really hard to differentiate between being in a bad market and otherwise doing good work versus just being a bad founder or bad operator and i think i'd let that thought creep into my head that like maybe i just wasn't very good at this and i'm definitely not perfect <laughs> yeah i'm not claiming otherwise but But being here and being in a great market with a great team and and like being an important contributor to that team has been redeeming for my professional self-esteem. Like I actually feel like actually I'm I'm pretty good at what I do and I enjoy doing it. And that's been a very wonderful side effect of the journey at, at Rippling so far.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned you and Parker Conrad were friends since you guys were teenagers. How has that dynamic been building a company, especially from that early stage to now the scale it's at now with a friend?
1: One of the most important ingredients to business success is trust. When leaders in a business can fight, disagree, debate, and never feel like the foundation of the relationship is threatened, that allows for a more open and fulsome debate of whatever issue you got to debate. And you can't construct trust out of thin air. Some people earn it more easily than others, but there's a lot to be said for the value of pre-existing trust, you know, pri- prior to a business relationship. And Parker and I have known each other for a long time. You know, we've had like our, our lives have dovetailed and separated over the course of, you know, 15 years since graduating from school, but we we had always stayed in touch and our spouses knew each other and you know there was there was a very deep well of trust and honestly also a very deep well of shared experience because both parker and i had had really rough failures i think his failure was more public and painful than mine but i think from an ego perspective we we both had ours crushed and and like you know as i said turned into tea and that shared experience also gave us a foundation for trust and so like working with someone you trust with your life and being able to go at each other assertively as necessary just gives you a competitive advantage. Like Parker can read my facial expressions. I can read his. I know when he's pissed. I know when he's excited. He knows when I'm pissed. He knows when I'm annoyed. And like, it doesn't require a whole bunch of, you know, investment of energy to sort of manage the emotions. He doesn't really have to treat me like, you know, I am his employee, but he doesn't have to treat me like an employee. He can treat me as a peer, you know, which is really, really powerful because we can make decisions together. He can hold me accountable without ever fearing that I'm going to run screaming out of the room or quit. Like it's, it's, it's super important. And so I think like I'm an investor in like something like 50 or 60 companies now, and I don't care. I do that again for the sport. I don't care what the financial outcome is on those businesses. I just enjoy working with, with fellow founders. But as I look at the performance of those companies, the ones where there was a founding team that had that foundation of trust were the ones that performed well you know, or the ones that found the outcome, the correct outcome quickest, regardless of whether it was, you know, hugely enriching or not. And so, yeah. So, so working with Parker was a huge privilege and, and a, and a huge joy. And I think he feels the same way about me.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when I take a look at, you know, Rippling's strategy, it's definitely is an interesting one that not a lot of companies do, right? So most companies will have like maybe one product to start, try to reach product market fit. And then once they start to grow, they'll add more to the product line. Whereas Rippling started out with multiple products targeted to be like a one-stop shop data store for employees, and then applying that understanding of the employee data to all of these different problems in a business, especially for HR. Why was that the ideal strategy for the company, and then how do founders know when to take advantage of building this compound startup?
1: Yeah, okay. so this is like a massive misconception about probably rippling and certainly like a, a, a misconception about how to build a big company or there's a whole bunch of misunderstanding around this. you have you have the opportunity to do what the market affords you with your company. Like, you don't get to decide that the market wants XYZ from your company. You have to discover naturally what the market wants. You got to think about either overt need. A cure for cancer is an overt need. We all want one. Lots of companies working on it. Hard problem. Um, Most startups are really around latent need. Latent need is like no one was screaming from the rooftops. If only they'd invent iPhone, you know? Steve just sort of figured out that, like, that's what the world wanted and created it. And, like, the minute you saw it, you knew you had the need, but you weren't asking for it in advance. That's the vast majority of interesting startups. Rippling absolutely falls into the latent need category, where it's like we solve a problem most HR, IT, and finance professionals don't even understand they have, that, like, they waste a ton of time just doing ops. Chasing data integrity, that kind of thing, that like is just a huge suck on their businesses, and nobody's like saying, "Hey, if only someone would build like one global system for all your finance, I HR, and IT." I'm just like rattling off a positioning statement. Like nobody's asking for that, uh, but we know that that's what we should create because we understand like what's happening under the hood for our customers and how it could be better. The reason I bring this up in the context of the compound startup is that like that definition of the problem is uniquely amenable to what we do as a company with our product family if you capture the data of the employee into a single system of record and then you build a layer of applications on top of that data that for example share a common understanding of every concept every application your time and attendance software your your corporate card software your HRIS, all these things understand the concept of a VP exactly the same way, then you never have to worry about integrating the applications and reconciling different interpretations of what a VP is in your company. And that just unlocks a shit ton of efficiency, hugely efficient, way better than bringing a bunch of different products together and trying to tie them under a roof with your IT team. Um, Compound startup is where Every application benefits from some underlying superpower where everything that you build in the company is, you know, I, I don't know if you like, you know, Wakanda and like Black Panther, like for any of your listeners who are unfamiliar, this is the the movie where there was a, you know, Wakanda was the country and they had this very special element that allowed them to do things. Do you, do you happen to remember what that was, Seamus?
0: No, because I didn't watch the movie. My brothers did convince me to watch it a couple of times, but did not watch it yet. <laughs> vibranium.
1: Vibranium. It's the blue glowing thing in the movie. Vibranium was just like, you know, this element that they discovered that they didn't share with anybody else and they could like transport, they could fly. They did all these amazing things because they had Vibranium. Compound startups can be built when you have Vibranium, when you have something That like is uniquely yours that gives you superpowers across a whole bunch of different parts of, you know, your business. And for Rippling, the answer to that is like our vibranium is this system of record that we've built for employee data with a nice clean interface on top, super clean structure for the data, objects that are representing like everything lives in an object. There's an object history. Every application that's built on top of it can benefit from that absolutely crystal clean structure and so we build a compound startup because we have our vibranium. Now, what happens when like the next door, the country next door that doesn't have vibranium decides that they want to build flying rockets and, you know, perfect impenetrable shields and all the things that, you know, that you might want to build with your special element? If they don't have their special element, then they don't really have a strategic advantage in in becoming a compound startup. And what I'm seeing play out in the valley, because like this compound startup concept Parker absolutely coined the term. I think I was in the room when he did it. And like it, it caught on like wildfire as a concept. A lot of people think they can go just like by having multiple products, they're now a compound startup. No, that is like a really basic emulation of what I think is quite rarefied in terms of, you know, a skill for a company and and, and critically a market that is willing to embrace the approach. And like in our market, the HR, you know, HR, IT, finance, all the GNA functions in small medium businesses, like they're very willing to accept the concept of a vendor that provides them with these, you know, different related services. I just don't think that happens very often. Most of the people who call themselves a compound startup are just companies that are probably doing too many disparate and unrelated things at once. And it's super dangerous.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting analogy. And, you know, as we look towards the future, and before we wrap it up here, what do you think you see as the main challenges for either Rippling or HR management software companies in general over the next few years?
1: I mean, for Rippling, so for other HR software companies, their main challenge is Rippling. For so
0: that's Rippling. that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> like, yeah, no, we're fine. You know, we grew aggressively during COVID when customers Started hiring remote employees because our software helped with that. We have grown really rapidly during this economic tightening because people are consolidating onto our platform and getting rid of third-party products that cost more. So we're doing fine. I think the challenge ahead for us is that customers become a little more conservative as the economy turns, and like, yeah, we're the new kid on the block. You know, like we're arguably a riskier solution to to adopt into your business. Than than the you know the ADPs of the world that have been around for a long time, we're not terribly worried about it in the sense that like we think our model is going to win over the long term unequivocally, but we're super tight fisted right now on you know on where we spend money. We're hiring only the amount that we need. I, I think that's like the overarching challenge is to maintain a really aggressive growth rate that we think is befitting of the potential of the company, while also achieving efficiency metrics that like the market has not demanded of startups up until now. And, and so we're trying to work within those constraints, but I like we're probably uniquely capable of doing that because of the multiple sources of revenue that we've got as we grow across all of our different product lines.
0: Yeah, I think that's super key, especially your point on hiring, because we see a lot of startups and businesses, especially when there's a bull market, just overhire just because they can. And then, had, like a lot of big companies that we see now with Google and Facebook and Meta, they have to start laying off employees because it's ends up becoming hard and constrained.
1: I got, yeah. I got some, I got yeah. some. I'll say about that, which is like, <clears throat> I said earlier in this this podcast that one of the most important pieces for me in deciding where I wanted to go is that I wanted to be on a team that wanted to win. And if you look at like the women's Olympic gold medal team from a few years back, you look at the golden state warriors, you just like pick a team, you know, that's like just gone to the championships and, and murdered it. Do you think that they like sat around and waited for times to be tough before they like eliminated members of their team who were not performing?
0: No, they're like, all in. Yeah.
1: They were all in. And like if there was a if there's a bench warmer and the Golden State Warriors, someone they traded on the team who's like just not very good, like they don't hang out until there's an economic downturn to eliminate that person from the team. Then they cut the person from the team. That's how you do it. That's how you win a championship. And like sports is the same thing. It's not to say that it has to be cold or ruthless or unfair or unethical or anything like that. There are ways to do this that are very respectful of everyone involved. But like Rippling, we haven't done any layoffs. And we're not going to do any layoffs as far as I can tell, at least from where we stand right now, because we've been very assertive in making sure that every member of our team should be on the team. And, you know, that's like a a form of fiscal responsibility, but it's also a form of like operational excellence. And look, Rippling is like not a company where everybody should come and work. We're an acquired taste. you got to want to be on the Olympic gold team. That's not something you sign up for nonchalantly. Like you sign up because you want to join something that's tough and you want to go for it and you want to win the gold together with the team. But like the paradox there is like, it's hard to hire and you don't end up like meta and Google and these companies that just like got fat. I feel like my full-time job right now is a game of whack-a-mole, making sure that like we keep our standards high across the business, not just in terms of people, but like in terms of business execution, prioritization, that like every ounce of effort that we put into something at the company is yielding a return for the employees, i.e. the shareholders, you know, like everybody who stands to benefit from our success, including our investors. But like my focus is on, is on the employees. So, um, I, you know, it's like you brought up those big companies and talked about their, like, their, their, like fat cutting. And I just think it's important to note that like, it's, if you ever get into a situation where you've got to do that, it's not just like, oh, aggressive hiring during COVID. It's just bad management. And, you know, I think we'll never be perfect here, but I do aspire to a higher quality of management than letting that happen.
0: Yeah, definitely. And even when layoffs eventually do happen for other companies, like you mentioned, they do happen. When I interviewed Bill George, who was the former CEO of Medtronic, he had very few layoffs at the company. But when he did have a couple of them, the media sometimes portrays these things as being very negative and unethical, like you mentioned, but there is a right way to do it. He tried to help line interviews and have job fairs up for people to help get a new job and step them to their next stage of their career. So there are right ways to do it, like you mentioned, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, job number one is to, is to never have to do them. I think that's like the, you know, I guarantee that like at some point in the future in my career, I'll I'll stumble across it again. But like the the reality is that, you know, I think it's one of my most important duties around here to make sure that we never, we never have to go there.
0: Exactly. And as we wrap it up here, what would you say are some of your takeaways for maybe next generation founders or entrepreneurs? And then uh, anyone interested in Rippling, where can they learn more about your company?
1: On the next generation of founders, like understand, (laughs) there are so many things to understand as you jump into, as you, as you jump into founding a company and, and like the most important thing you can do to set yourself up for success is number one, set your ego aside and remember that it's always about the business. It's just the results. The only thing that matters is the results. The second very important thing to, to remember is like the market's going to decide your fate way more than you are. And like you just have to have a bit of grace in accepting that there's a lot of externality to the outcome and, and never let it get you down. And also just accept that, like the, you know, even if you're wildly successful, you still shouldn't take too much credit for that. The market is what decides these outcomes. <clears throat> and so, like, be a fatalist without being a nihilist. I have a whole a whole set of thoughts around that. And then it's like, do it. Cause like the one Sort of Silicon Valley investor trope that I agree with, or one of the few that I agree with, is that you should actually just go do it if you want to do it, regardless of your reason. And the reason I believe that is because it's a it's a it's a regret minimization heuristic. Like if if you don't ever start a company, having wished you you had, you you'll regret that. You'll wonder what could have been. You'll wonder what you would have learned. And if you do do it and you fail, you may or may not regret it, but you'll regret it a lot less than if you hadn't tried at all. And like, I know that's cheese ball stuff, but having lived through it, I can attest that like, if you really want to start something, the least evil option is to start it. And so I always encourage people to do it. And then just like, get into it eyes wide open, knowing what you're getting yourself into. I have, I don't think I've ever really seen other than people who maybe who achieved crazy success and let it get to their heads. I don't think I've ever seen somebody go in the front end of the startup journey and come out the other end worse for it. Like I've always seen them come out the other end better people. And that's like a a very infrequently discussed benefit of what happens in Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, definitely. And building a startup can, you know, it's an insanely positive learning experience. You can learn a lot. And even if you decide to be an employee, just building the startup yourself and having that experience can help you become a better operator, or a better leader, or whatever it might be in terms of when you're part of a company. But yeah, definitely agree with For that. Sure.
1: I mean, you you teed me up on the rippling piece. It's like if the the most important thing that you should do before you start a company is work at a high growth company. Like, product market fit is never ambiguous. If it's ambiguous, you don't have it. Join a company that has rip-roaring, screaming good product market fit to see how it feels. And that way, when you start your company, you'll never have any doubt whether you have it or not. And Rippling is a good example. It's like, if for, for anybody who's sort of wants a taste of... A machine that's working really really well it's not perfectly managed you know it's messy on the inside and that's just the way it works when you're moving this quickly but it is a lot of fun and it's a great team you know rippling or some other high growth startup it's like the most important thing you can do to set yourself up for success if you want to start a company later on don't go to google don't go to meta don't waste your time you know at a 15 or 20 year old company that has has it all figured out go somewhere messy and and chaotic and high growth and that's the ultimate ingredient to figuring out how to how to make it work when you start your own
0: yeah that's a great point all right everyone that wraps it up for today's episode if you enjoyed the podcast make sure to leave a five-star review down below and to share this with a friend if you enjoyed the podcast so uh, that wraps it up for today's episode and thank you very much matt for taking the time to join the show it was a pleasure my pleasure I appreciate it